Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is February 19th, 2010, and my guest is Barry Ritholtz, CEO and Director of Equity Research at Fusion IQ, an online quantitative research firm. He's the host of the investment website, The Big Picture, and author of Bailout Nation. Barry, welcome to Econ Talk. Thanks for having me. The title of your book is Bailout Nation. Why did you call your book that, and how does it relate to the crisis? Well, it, the title was actually coined by Bill Fleckenstein, who did the forward to the book and had previously been the author of Greenspan's Bubbles. And the concept of it was just simply we had turned from at least the mythology of a nation that very much was independent-minded and you know, pick yourself up by your bootstraps, a land where anybody, if they are clever and work hard and apply themselves, can can make something of themselves, and, and we went from that to you know, a group of, of coddled and overpaid bankers that are rescued from their own folly by the government. And it, it seemed to be the perfect fit for what was taking place. We're not a nation that studies a lot of history, unfortunately, I, I believe. One of the things I liked a lot about the book is your tracing of this phenomenon. I think a lot of people think it started in March of 2008, maybe when we rescued Bear Stearns. But as you point out, it goes back a lot longer. What, in your narrative, where does it start? Um, the, the idea of bailouts, and, and I, I look at the universe of bailouts in, in two ways. It's, it's one thing if you're an extreme skier and you go out into the backwoods and you find yourself in you know, trouble. Hey, you took on that risk yourself. That's very different than people walking down the street when suddenly a building comes down or there's an earthquake or something else. I try to draw the distinction between people who are in trouble through no fault of their own and other people who elected to take a risk to be aggressive, to speculate, and run into trouble. So I look at the, the Depression and its aftermath very differently than what, what came later. So the first real bailout where the government says, hey, you engaged in some really foolish behavior, and if, if we were truly a capitalist nation, you would suffer the consequences of your own folly, uh, was Lockheed. It was 1971. Um, they knew their way around the government, around government defense contracting, and they had tried to get into building private sector planes, uh, overextended themselves, built a couple of planes that weren't well regarded in the marketplace, big cost overruns, and found themselves you know, in a real precarious liquidity position, running out of money, and yet they have all these big government contracts that during a time of war, during the Vietnamese War. So instead of going through a normal reorganization process, which is what most companies do, they turned around and went to the government and said, hey, if you don't give us a loan, we're going to go bankrupt, and how is that going to help your war effort? And it was a very, very close debate. I believe the Lockheed debate um, uh, might have been the one where the vice president had to break the tie, if memory serves. It was a very, very tough uh, vote. Because at the time, it was recognized that this was not business as usual. 
Yeah, it was it was clearly not business as usual, and in fact, it was it was Senator William Proxmire, a fairly conservative senator at the time, who coined the phrase "corporate welfare" to describe the idea of it. it, it, it not only was it not business as usual, it was unconscionable to think that a company that in the marketplace ran into trouble because of its own management and decisions it's made and and poor execution to go to the government and say, hey, you've got to give us a loan or we're in trouble, uh, unimaginable, hard, hard to imagine. And so uh, – One of the justifications, of course, and the next one's going to be Chrysler. We'll talk about that next. But one of the justifications was, well, it's only a loan, right? They're, they're not – they're not – Expect to get it back, and I think I think they did get it back. Yes, actually, they did. Which so it, it turned out, unfortunately, in my opinion, to, to look like it was not a big deal. Well, when you when you think about that, it's uh, okay. You, when you make law, when you make policy, when you govern a nation, uh, the idea is to to be broad and pass rules that affect everybody, not to carve out these specific exceptions for connected companies. That whose management is close to some elected official. So why are we giving it to Lockheed but not their competitors? Why are we giving a loan um, not to Grumman and not to Rockwell and not to Northrop and not to all of their competitors? You're giving a strategic advantage to one group of companies, employees, suppliers, and you're disadvantaging everybody else. And it, it's that's one of the fascinating things. Anytime we look at government actions. You're, the government is essentially picking winners and losers. And it's great if you're in the winning pile, hey, I got a big tax rebate. But if you're in the losing pile, or I got a mortgage modification to bring it up to speed. Uh, but on the other hand, if you're in the losing pile, wait, you mean I was practical and put 30% down and only bought as much house as I can afford? Those people are, are the losers in the math of that. Or if you're today, the best example is if you're a first-time home buyer and prices remain elevated because of all the government subsidies, well, you're the loser, and the existing homeowners who overpaid are the winners in that scenario. With Lockheed, it's a perfect example. They won because they got this low-interest loan when they never would have gotten it from the private sector, and their competitors who were playing by the rules and doing well and executing, uh, they didn't get that sort of, of, of credit line, and so you put them at a dis- competitive disadvantage. You also create the incentive... For rent seeking, a technical term, formal right. piece of jargon in economics, that rather than try to make better airplanes the next time, you, you might think, well, I'll just go to Washington. That's the because, moral hazard argument yeah. is every time you do one of these, you encourage uh, more and more of them because, in the back of people's minds, hey, you know, if things really get bad, I can always go to Uncle Sam. So let's go to the next one, which was, I think, Chrysler. Is that correct? Well, you have a couple of minor uh, things in between. You have Continental Illinois. In '74, and then you no, have con- uh, actually Continental Illinois is '84, and it's I don't consider that minor, so I want to come to that with a little more attention. Okay, but Chrysler, and then you also had the the uh, some of the railroad issues that Correct. took place in the '70s. That's right. Um, but those were relatively minor. Chrysler was really a sea change. It was also controversial. Uh, uh, you'll you'll notice these things tend to happen during election years. Not a coincidence. Presidential. Election years, Lockheed was before the 72 election, Chrysler was before the 80 election. Uh, not a coincidence, it was a swing state. Uh, not a coincidence, um, it was a state that, that, that could have gone either way. But what made Chrysler so fascinating to me, just as someone who looks at history, is you end up with this 
icon of American industry that through a series of really, really bad decisions, some of which go back to the 50s. Horrible cars. Uh, bad <laughs> cars, bad design, um, bad union contracts that they had, all big three um, automakers, or, or big two and a half, as uh, they were called by Barron's at the time, uh, half referring to Chrysler, uh, basically uh, signed this, this contract in the 50s. It was after World War II. Uh, we're building out suburbia. Millions of GIs are returning home um, from war, and uh, businesses booming everywhere. And as opposed to risking a, a strike or, or falling behind production, um, GM, Ford, and Chrysler signed this very generous contract with the union that gave very strong health care and very strong pension benefits and, and pretty much guaranteed jobs because they were just never perceiving what happened when the end of the baby boom um, bulge took place. I mean, they weren't even envisioning that. The, the demographic changes were still in the future. So they signed this contract to just let's crank out all these cars, and it took about 25 years before you know, the effects of it were pretty uh, widespread. Combine that with, with what took place with the um, oil uh, issues in the 70s and the price of oil spiking, and you have a, a recipe for... As Warren Buffett said, the tide goes out, and you could see who's not wearing a bathing suit. And it was pretty clear <laughs> of the big three, General, uh, Chrysler was the one that had the worst cars, the worst balance sheet, the worst corporate structure, and they were teetering on the verge of, of collapse. And again, I think in that case, the government <clears throat> didn't make the loan, but they guaranteed the loan, which again got paid back, right. again, making people think it's not that big a deal. I, by the way, started teaching – in 1980, and uh, one of my students gave a uh, did a pencil drawing of Lee Iacocca for me with the legend "Our Hero," which was uh, sarcastic. We, 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 I didn't think very much of that uh, attempt to save his company, nor did I like his attempts to keep out Japanese cars that the rest of us were interested in, perhaps buying, and um, thought that was a good thing. And he did not. Uh, so, but I want to go to '84 because the Continental Illinois decision. For me, when I think my narrative is, is starts there, I like that you brought in these other examples that I think set the stage for Continental Illinois. Well, before we go to Continental Illinois, let, let's just talk about Chrysler for one more minute. Sure. And I always like to discuss the counterfactuals since we 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 don't have access to a uh, a window to see into an alternative universe. You have to just hypothesize these things and, and say to yourself, what would the world have looked like? What would the American automobile industry look like today if instead of being rescued, Chrysler is forced to go through the difficult process of bankruptcy reorganization, perhaps even liquidation? What would have happened? Great point. And now, so everybody stops and says, well, you would have lost a couple hundred thousand jobs and you would have had this, but here's what we know happened. We know that from 1980 to two, three years ago, um, the UAW went from uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of a million and a half um, members to today they have under 300,000. This is with the Chrysler Rescue, that the big three auto share went from market share of, of automobiles in the U.S. went from greater than 75% to now under 50%, uh, and that ultimately GM and, and Chrysler had to a, had a file bankruptcy in, in 2009. So... That's what happened with the rest. Which we're still paying, which we're going to pay for, I believe, and continue to pay for. That's right. So that is what we ended up with after we had, had the rescue. 
had we, uh, the argument, uh, the counterfactual argument I make in the book is, if we would have said to Chrysler, well, you guys obviously are doing a lousy job, and while we're concerned about, um, you know, losing all these jobs, I think what we should do is, the most the government should do is to say to somebody, you're a significant player, we think you should reorg as opposed to liquidating, and if you cannot find um, any private sector financing, um, we'd be willing to, uh, what I think we should have done with Warren Buffett and GE and Goldman, if you find somebody, we'll match the private sector debtor in, in possession financing, meaning you need a, a lot of money to put a big company like that through a reorg. So instead of us giving you a, a billion dollars, find someone who will give you $500 million and we'll match it and therefore go do what you have to do. And had Chrysler gone through that process, we know, we know a, a handful of things would have happened for a fact. For a fact... They would have gotten out of the the onerous labor contract, pension obligations, health care obligations. That, that's number one. Number two, we can imagine that it really would have put the, the fear of God into the senior management of GM and, uh, and Ford, although you certainly could make an argument that they would have just kind of snickered at, at Chrysler and said, see, we're doing something right, they went belly up. And, and perhaps it might have made the UAW a little more um, interested in negotiating a less of a Detroit, more of a Silicon Valley type of contract with much less guaranteed benefits and much more stock options so that the employees participate in the upside, whereas they're not guaranteed, and it really gives everybody incentive to do a, a really good job. None of that took place. We just kicked the can down the road 25 years, and, and you know how that ended. Uh, all, all well said, and I the, the counterfactual uh, attempt to at least imagine what would have happened, I think, is extremely important. So let's turn to Continental Illinois, which is the first large financial institution rescue. And as you point out in the book, uh, remarkably um, reminiscent of what we're in now, a highly leveraged uh, bank making a lot of risky bets with other people's money. That's that's exactly right, and and how could that ever have ended badly? I mean, what a, what a <laughs> shocker that that yeah. took place. So they were in it. So they get. Uh, I want to make a an observation here, which which in my narrative I, I think is extremely important, and I think is often forgotten. Uh, they didn't get bailed out per se. It's their creditors that got bailed out, and repeatedly, what we do in the United States is bail out the creditors. Sometimes we let the firm fail. But we almost never – there's two exceptions we'll talk about. We almost never let the creditors go down. And, of course, that encourages creditors to be less um, – to, to be riskier and less prudent when making their loans. Right, and I, I, that's extremely important. So they go down in 84, um, and then the, the next event I want to talk about is the, is the 1998 uh, long-term capital management, which you and others – uh, point put a lot of weight in, on. I put some weight on. I'm not as uh, convinced. I'd like to be, but I'm not as convinced. So, talk. Give us a little of that background of what happened there. What, what their similar issue? A highly leveraged firm, meaning very much using other people's money, borrowed money rather than their own capital to make risky bets. That, that's exactly right. And and when you talk about leveraged, we're talking about extremely leveraged. Plus, uh, there was a little. Um, for lack of a, uh, a better phrase, there was a little air of mystery around long-term capital management. This was before 
quants were as well understood as they are today as, as pr- previous prior to black box trading being as as ubiquitous as it is today. A bunch of Nobel laureates with a very clever model managed to find these small anomalies, these small inefficiencies, and pretty much arbitrage them away. Made a lot of money along the way. Uh, well, in the beginning, they made a ton of money because uh, what everybody extended them credit at very cheap terms because they wanted to do business with them. They were looking for a little, for a look at what they were doing, hoping to be able to imitate it and, and capture a little bit of that magic fairy dust gets sprinkled over them. And, and so you end up with long-term capital management um, based on actually a fairly valid idea, which was simply mean reversion. Look, we know there are these relationships with different asset classes, and so when this, uh, this relationship gets too far out of um, whack, well, we'll just take the other side of the bet. The problem with that is if you're doing it with leverage, you have to hope that you're making that bet just as the stretch rubber band comes back to position and not before it keeps stretching. And, and that was the error that they had made, is they had deployed so much leverage and they had bought so much hard-to-trade, you know, esoteric uh, Russian bonds that were you know, just really small, tiny, odd little... Things look. You go out and buy a thirty-year Treasury note for, or a ten-year Treasury from the uh, federal, from the U.S. Treasury. Uh, there are build literally trillions of dollars traded on this, millions and millions. It's very liquid. You want to sell a billion dollars, you can do it in a minute. If you're going to buy a you know a small, thinly traded note that there's not a ready buyer or seller for, when you go to liquidate that position, you're not going to get anywhere near the current bid price because someone's bidding for a hundred shares and you have ten million to sell it'll go from a hundred dollars to twenty dollars in, in no time at all so what made long-term capital management is it was a tremendous opportunity to send a warning to the marketplace that hey if you get into trouble because you're going to be speculative because you're going to be highly leveraged if you if you choose to I call it the beanie baby hedge fund syndrome if you choose to not buy stocks, bonds, options, and futures and commodities, things that are very liquid and easy to trade and easy to value, well, then we're not going to rescue you. Imagine a billion-dollar hedge fund set up to only buy Star Wars collectibles and Beanie Babies. (laughs) That's essentially what long-term capital management did with all this esoteric, thinly traded from all manners of the the globe um, paper. And so why should the New York Fed have stepped in to save them? Had they not done that, it wouldn't have been fatal. It wouldn't have remotely been systemic risk. It would have punished, appropriately so, punished the companies that made bad bets. So it would have been Citigroup would have lost $3 billion and Bank America would have lost $2 billion and, you know, a billion here, a billion there. But in the scheme of modern finance, relative to how much money these companies manage and trade and put at risk, it would have been a painful, you know, knee skinning as opposed to a full-blown decapitation, which is what we saw this last go-round. Well, uh, two two questions about long-term capital management. First, I want to talk about the firm that didn't get rescued, that that those of us uh, – <clears throat> you know, I'm, a, I'm very much interested in this idea that moral hazard helped create the crisis, past bailouts or the expectation of bailouts helped create the crisis – 
those of us who believe that have to deal with two things related to one related to long-term capital management and one uh, related to a firm we haven't mentioned, which is Drexel Burnham. So Drexel Burnham does not get rescued. They're a, quote, large financial firm, and they're allowed to go bankrupt, which they do peaceably, and um, the world doesn't end. Um, as you said, it was a skin knee for some of their, I'm sure, some of their creditors and counterparties. It was unpleasant. Uh, of course, it was just, it's been suspected, I don't know if it's true, that the head of Drexel Burnham, uh, Joseph, was uh, despised by the Secretary of the Treasury, Nicholas Brady, for what their previous interactions have been. That's the claim of James Stewart. Um, I don't know if it's true, but that may have affected the politics of of them being uh, rescued. So they weren't rescued. So that was a signal, at least to some folks, that they might not get rescued. And then the long-term capital management, they weren't exactly rescued. Uh, the Fed orchestrated the bailout, not the bailout, the rescue. The Fed said, okay, all you guys who owe, uh, who lent money to long-term capital, rather than go, having them go bankrupt and you guys getting pennies on the dollar, why don't you guys figure out a way to keep them afloat for a while so there isn't this big uh, collapse and, and catastrophic consequences? Perhaps there would have been, perhaps not. But the creditors themselves are the ones who who, pl- who played a role in the rescue, not not the federal government. The federal government did orchestrate it, bring them to the table. It's true they made it clear that they weren't happy about long-term capital management going under and that they would work to make it happen. And you know, it's not really voluntary when they orchestrated it. They, they kind of forced these firms to do that. But the firms that were involved did pay a price. Do you think that's a correct counterpoint to your argument? Um, I, I think that's a fair assessment. I don't know if I would call it a. Um, I don't think they paid much of a price, and 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 you know the distinction between, let's say, a long-term capital management and, and Drexel. Obviously, you have an enormous uh, criminal investigation into Drexel, the whole Michael Milken thing, the insider trading scandal. So Drexel was was not perceived as a moral hazard because the or as a warning against speculation. It was perceived that, hey, if one of your senior guys gets caught doing something very illegal, your firm is at risk. That, back in the, that was back in the day when it was a partnership, not a publicly traded company. And the irony of Drexel to me is at the time they were the fifth largest investment bank, which is what uh, Bear Stearns was. Correct. And the difference between the two, you know, there were no allegations that Bear Stearns was doing anything illegal. There were allegations that they were doing things that were really stupid, but Correct. that's not the same. So. I look at Drexel as sort of a, a special case, an independent case. You you have a company that's caught in the middle of a huge scandal, and essentially a lot of their trading partners just said, um, gee, we don't need this. And you start having some senior producers leave. Remember, Milken was the big rainmaker there. Uh, so the, the name became tainted. I, I really look at that as a whole separate animal versus the Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, long-term capital management issue. But I think you're 100% right that these bailouts primarily have served to to rescue um, the creditors of, of a lot of these companies. Look at the Bear Stearns rescue. Even though the, the transaction to J.P. Morgan, originally at $2 and ultimately at $10, down from almost $200. Yeah, 172 was the Yeah, you, you ended up with the bondholders of Bear, being made whole, getting 100%. paid 100% on the dollar, just like the AIG counterparties, 
Lehman becomes a weird exception, and I think there's a very, there, to some degree, there's a there's a moral hazard argument with Lehman, but uh, you you have a very different situation with an insular chief executive who had the opportunity to rescue the firm and he blew it. And and one of the things people just don't know about Lehman Brothers, it's public, it's in the news, it, it was you know uh, it was publicly out there. I put in the book uh, over the summer before they collapsed when he was speaking to banks in Korea and trying to raise money, Warren Buffett made an offer. Warren Buffett said, I'll give you $3 billion, here are my terms, and the way I negotiate it, you have two options. You can take it or leave it. And it turns out the terms he offered Dick Fold for Lehman Brothers were, were actually better than what he ended up doing with Goldman Sachs and GE down the road. He had even worse terms, but by then the crisis was... Yeah. Uh, more dangerous. And, and it's not just $2 billion from from Warren. You get the Berkshire Hathaway, you know, it's the, the corporate America good housekeeping seal of approval. Right. You take $2 billion from Buffett, you're rescued, you're saved, everybody else will be thrilled to lend you money, and now you avoid a crisis. Uh, stop and think about the hubris of, of Dick Fault to say, no, I don't want your money, this is a bad deal, we'll figure something out. Thanks anyway, and three months later they were gone. It's quite astonishing, and I have to think that at a certain point in the conversation between Ben Bernanke as, as chairman of the Fed and Hank Paulson as, as Treasury Secretary, they're scratching their head, thinking about how they could get some money to Lehman Brothers, and they just look at each other and said, "He said what to Buffett? He turned down how much money? How the hell can we give this guy a penny if he's turning billions of dollars away?" Because it wasn't on terms he liked. I'm sorry, but if anybody needs to go down, it, it's this guy. And I know people have said there's bad blood between Paulson and um, Fold. And Fold, but I I can't help think that even if it wasn't Hank Paulson, it could have been Tim Geithner, it could have been anybody else in that room. Uh, people are scratching their heads and saying, y- "You know, you've been in a crisis. You just saw Bear Stearns go down, even though we lent uh, we guaranteed 29 billion." For, for J.P. Morgan to buy them, how do you not take money from Warren Buffett? I, I, if I was a fly on the wall, I can't help but suspect that you would have heard someone say, geez, what was this guy thinking? How could we give him money? If we give him money after he turned down Warren Buffett, everybody will be lined up because it's clear that don't negotiate with the private sector. Uncle Sam is there to bail you out. That was the one approach to moral hazard. I think they did right. What they then did wrong was say, all right, let's do a controlled bankruptcy. Let's do a controlled um, reorganization. Instead, they just kind of said, all right, well, you turn Warren down, now you're going to hit the pavement with zero net and everything will splat everywhere. And that's pretty much what ended up happening. Instead of doing a sort of, uh, let's be honest, Bear Stearns was a controlled bankruptcy, and it was a sale of, of you know, in assets, yeah. they could have done something similar with Lehman. Well, they kind of tried. They tried to get Barclays to to buy them, and they had a a similar. Uh, but they well, here's here, let's put this in. Let me let me give you a different theory and, and get your reaction. Sure. Um, what the government did with Bear Stearns, for those out there who've forgotten, is they said we're going to make it easy. Is that we don't want them to go bankrupt, which I think they should have done. But they said we don't want them to go bankrupt, so. To make them attractive to a suitor, we're going to guarantee – at first they said 32 It ended up being $29 billion worth of assets that, that 
perhaps aren't worth very much, perhaps are too hard to figure out what they're worth. We're going to make it easy for J.P. Morgan Chase to, to acquire them, and they, and they did. With Lehman, they tried to do the same thing, but they wanted somebody to buy Lehman, but they wouldn't make that guarantee, right? That's right. And Barclay said, well, our regulator, the whatever it is, the Bank of England, isn't going to be happy about this, so we need the guarantee. And they said, nah, we don't think we're going to do it this time or whatever. Uh, so l- let me give a different interpretation. Yours is possible, of course. It could be they said, well, Fold's an idiot. Uh, their public story is we had to send a message. We couldn't, you know, we had to draw the line somewhere. Of course, then they proceeded to never draw the line anywhere uh, and always pay 100 cents on the dollar, which is bizarre. But let's look at the, at the political economy of it. Uh, you talk about a little bit in the book on the Bear Stearns side. You point out that the biggest creditor of, of Bear Stearns was J.P. Morgan. Uh, they had a huge amount at stake if Bear went bankrupt. Uh, so they were very happy to acquire those assets and not have to deal with it. Uh, the question I have is, who are Lehman's creditors? In Lehman's bankruptcy, which I've seen, and I'm not very good at figuring it out, but best I can tell, most of their creditors were Asian banks who don't have a lot of political pull in Washington. It's not surprising that, that they couldn't go to Washington and say, hey, aren't you, we don't want to lose our money. And then the other question I've seen nobody talk about, and maybe you know, I, I, maybe it's not knowable, when – when Bear Stearns was uh, rescued, they didn't go bankrupt formally. You said they were – it was a controlled right. bankruptcy. So what, what does that mean for somebody who held credit default swaps on Bear Stearns, people who bought insurance for Bear Stearns' potential bankruptcy versus people who held Lehman credit default swaps who did were now owed money because the, because the government let them go bankrupt? There's a massive economic stake, financial stake that people had in both of those – actions, and there were huge winners and losers, and I haven't seen anybody talk about who those winners and losers were, which I would think would be kind of important for figuring out why the government did what they did. you know anything about that? Well, what's the, it's a fascinating point, and, and when you look at what took place um, when Bear Stearns was in the process of, of collapse, uh, the thought process was that a lot of the people who had bought CDSs either to betting on it's not so much betting on the Bear Stearns bankruptcy, but betting on on their credit worthiness. Uh, also had positions in in options that bet on the stock price. So uh, the the scuttlebutt, and this is just Wall Street rumor; it was never verified. Was well, they didn't make as much money as they would have made had had Bear Stearns bonds uh, gone to zero, but they made enough money on the equity side that. You know, let's not get too bent out of shape. I don't buy that argument. I think that the government steps in and they're picking, again, it's back to picking winners and losers or making winners and losers. Um, whoever's on one side of that CDS trade um, uh, that should have uh, been paid off is, is now uh, a loser instead of a winner. Uh, there's some argument to be made that when you have systemic risk, one of the risks involved in those sort of bets is the risk that the government won't allow these companies to go belly up. And after long-term capital management, uh, hey, anyone who's making that bet should have been aware that the fact the Fed does come in and sometimes... Uh, Good point. So, so regardless of that, though, uh, it, some, it, it, it's absolutely... You know, imagine a close Super Bowl game and you have the Vegas book on guys betting on each side... And it's as if, you know, with the clock winding down and the both teams leaving the field, um, the government steps in and says, we decided to add three points 
and we change the outcome of the game. We're going to make you kick the field goal that changes whether they covered or not. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and so you you literally have the um, decision making process, picking winners and losers. And I think people don't think about that enough. The the general sense is what the government. I keep hearing about this in housing, which has been a, a pet bugaboo of mine for years, but I. The other, just today, I think it was in the the Journal of the Times, something about uh, another billion and a half dollars is coming in to prop up housing. But when you, you by propping up housing, you are punishing, sorry, you're punishing renters who want to buy. You're punishing newlyweds who are saving to own. You're doing all the, even 0% interest rates, you're punishing the elderly who are on a fixed income and, and hoping to generate some sort of revenue off of bonds, off of, of their holdings. And Wherever you look, every time there's a decision, I'm not saying the government should do nothing, shouldn't be involved in any of this stuff, but we need to be more cognizant of you are picking winners and losers and very often rewarding um, the profligate and, and, and punishing the prudential. And I think that's a, a mistake to, that, that we make all the time. Couldn't agree with you more. Let's, uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and talk about another uh, strong theme in the book which is often uh, forgotten. And we talk a lot on this program about the Federal Reserve and monetary policy. We've had a, a lot of guests recently on it. But you talk about something that, that we haven't talked about that I think is extremely important. Uh, you talk about going back as far as 1987 <laughs> to Alan Greenspan's behavior in not bailing out the way that Bernanke did with a seven, or, or Paulson with a $700 billion check, or, say, taking over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac's obligations, a trillion dollars, which puts them on my balance sheet and yours instead of the Chinese uh, or whoever lent them the money. But instead, bailing out implicitly in this weird way by, by trying to manipulate short-term interest rates the way the Fed does and prop up asset markets. Uh, so talk about your, you have a very nice narrative in there. I really haven't seen it all put together the way you did it about what Alan Greenspan did and got away with. And I don't mean that in the criminal sense. I mean in the – he didn't pay a price for it for a long, long time, and then it blew up in his face. So you talk – The only – it's funny because uh, you mentioned history earlier, and uh, I love the Benjamin Disraeli quote. The one thing we learn from history is that we essentially learn nothing from history. Yeah. Uh, when you know, I watched this whole thing unfold, both as a trader and a, a, a market watcher. And then you go back and you read the history and you find some details you didn't know. Uh, I didn't realize that back in the um, late '80s, early '90s, the Fed chief could cut rates between meetings on his own. Well, we just had a guest on uh, Michael Belanchi who who detailed that. He did it, I think, six times. Right, uh, and he did it in clever and. Some, not, it wasn't secretive. It just got around the rules. It made him look more authoritative. It didn't require him to put through a uh, rate change that was, say, controversial among the, the governors. He could, Although I note in the book that uh, you know, it, it, maybe this was a little bit of hubris on his part, but he, he had, it, it was getting good to him, and he actually did one of the rate cuts like a week or two before the next FOMC meeting – and that's at that next meeting, the FOMC took away the Fed chair's power to do that. <laughs> that was the last time that happened. You haven't seen it since. Uh-huh. It's always been a, a decision. So when you go out, when I went out and was doing the research, I'm like, gee, the Fed chief was able to do this, and and he did it. So let let's go back to 1987. You have a 
a new Fed chief um, who's a little green and uh, not familiar with, um, you know, you, you assume that position. And Scary. It, it's definitely a, a learning process. And I, I thought it was quite fascinating that you have the 87 crash, which in and of itself was sort of a unique event. Normally, when you have a market crash, it, it, it's normally because something else is going. Stocks just don't drop 20, 30% because traders, you know, switch to decaf. It, 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 it reflects something that's going on. And, and as we've seen, markets, uh, you know, frequently get things wrong. They go too high. They go too low. But for the most part, for the middle part of the, the meat of a market before bubbles inflate and the crowd becomes, you know, euphoric, uh, markets do a fairly decent job getting a, a sense of, of, of price discovery. And so uh, when you have the stock market collapse through a combination of, and we could spend months debating why it collapsed, but... Uh, yeah, there's been so, a lot of speculation, people trying to uncover maybe what might have caused it, but for whatever rate, it, it, it plunged rather the, badly. The general sense is you, you have a, a newfangled product called portfolio insurance, which was a derivative-based product, and very creaky infrastructure. If, if you read, um, I think the book is uh, Black Monday, um, which I reference in, in Bail Nation. Um, that author does a great job explaining how creaky the plumbing and infrastructure of the exchange itself is. And there was reasons why you couldn't get through your brokerage firm. And they, the infrastructure just wasn't there. And so that and some intemperate comments from the U.S. Treasury Secretary about the dollar, and you have a 23% one-day drop on top of the 15 or so percent we had dropped leading up to that point. But the fascinating takeaway that I think Greenspan learned from the 87 crash um, was that, hey, you could have a market crash and clean up afterward, and there's no real broad economic effects in, in, the, in the broader economy. And the strange thing is, if you take that one anecdote and say, well, let's look at history and see if this is a one-off or not, you discover it actually is the exception to the rule, and in just about every other case. In fact, I want to say, in every single other case I've come across where there have been a substantial market dislocation, I mean more than a 5 or 10% correction, I mean a real serious shellacking, and and 23% in a day certainly counts, um... There's always been major, major uh, repercussions. You know, the Great Depression followed the crash in 29. And, you know, look past 87. Look at Japan and look at the U.S. in 2000 and look what we just went through. Uh, go through history, go through markets. You're hard-pressed to find, going far back as the 1600s and the, the tulip bubble, you're very hard-pressed to find a boom and bust in a market that didn't have a major impact on the broad economy. So instead of realizing that 87 is an oddity, it's a one-off, it's the exception, Greenspan drew the conclusion that, hey, it's easy to clean up after a market crash. So how did he clean up? Well, he cleaned up with, <laughs> with the, the strongest tool the Federal Reserve has, which is cutting rates. And so we cut rates fairly aggressively after the 87 crash. The, the odd thing is that what that ended up doing was causing a little a boom in the real estate market, and then when things started to seem to be stable and rates went up, well, uh, it's very simple math with the cost of houses. Cheap rates means 
your, your monthly costs are much lower. Rates go up. Your monthly costs go up. Uh, prices of housing, uh, this is what really was so infuriating, listening to people say, we've never had home prices drop in the history of that. Just not true. Obviously, the post-Depression era home prices really collapsed, but just look at, you know, the from 89 to 96, you saw a drop in home prices. In major cities, for sure. Right, that's right. And it was a, it was a relatively mild price. But, uh, look, when, whenever someone says this doesn't happen, and I have to go back to 1740 to find an example, you can excuse them for not digging that deeply. But when it happened, you know, a decade or so earlier, uh, you know that no, these people were just repeating what they've heard and not actually looking at the data and drawing intelligent conclusions. Yeah, well, they were just saying, yeah, home prices never go down. Uh, we know that's absurd on its face just from the 20th century, but obviously what, what's happened uh, over the past five years, hopefully no one will, will mouth that, that false statement. But back to Greenspan and, and stock market, uh, he started to recognize that, that he could more or less influence the outcome of the stock market by raising or lowering the price of interest rates. Now, how did, how did that mechanism work? What was, what was going on? Why was he able to do that? Why was he able to, through lower interest rates, push up the uh, the stock market back from its depths after that collapse in '87? Well, put this into the broader context of what came before. You had the huge spike of inflation during the '70s. You had Volcker in in the early '80s taking rates very very high, and even when the back of inflation was broken, rates had come down, but really were were somewhat elevated compared to historical levels. In, in the mid-'80s, you had the economy recovering. You had the stock market doing well. But I, if memory serves, I'm not looking at the data now, Fed rates were around 8%. Mortgages were in the 7 8%, 9% range. And so uh, you still had a little bit of room to squeeze out some more performance by taking rates lower, bringing them back to or below historic Level so every time we sort of ran into a little bit of a minor recession and and you know recessions aren't things to be feared they're normal part of the economic cycle you clear out dead wood you clear out the malinvestment uh, there's a famous quote that during recessions and bear markets money returns to its rightful owners which I've always interpreted as as meaning uh, careful people make money yeah exactly. And so we saw this again in 90 and 94 and 97 and 98. Anytime there was a threat to the stock market, you had the Asian crisis in 97, you had a recession in 90, you had a near recession in 94. Each time you would see some, some rate cuts. And, and it got to the point where traders on Wall Street pretty much figured out that they just had to sell stocks and Greenspan would come in and... and Say well, if they're selling stocks, they obviously are seeing problems in the economy that we're not seeing. Let's head off a recession and cut rates instead of saying. Uh, and uh, by the way, there's a whole nother level of of analysis and irony, irony about this uh, as an acolyte of Ayn Rand and and a you know let the free market do what it's going to do is actually pulling the levers constantly instead of of yeah uh, you know that's a whole that's between him and his shrink. I don't want to yeah. get, get into that, <laughs> but but. Y- y- to me, and maybe this is more of a power corrupts, and once you have that wave of applause of traders, I mean, he would walk into certain places and receive standing ovations 
um, Greenspan because, hey, he kept the rally going, he kept the market going. He was roundly criticized um, uh, for not cutting rates sooner in, in, in 92 and helped um, the elder Bush lose, or at least that's been the, the accusation. So he learned how to play the markets like a fiddle with his hands on, on pretty much the biggest lever in the arsenal of, of uh, government. And uh, it, it, there's a tremendous level of irony there, but the bottom line is it became pretty clear to traders that Greenspan um, had their back, that any you could buy pretty much anything because as soon as the market ran into some trouble, uh, the Fed would cut and, and cut aggressively, and that would juice everything, and, and we'd be off to the races again. Well, when we had Michael Belanchi on a few weeks ago, he's a f- uh, former researcher in the St. Louis Fed, and we were talking about the challenge that the Fed has one lever, which is – it actually has a few more, but it, it's, it is, in one sense it has one lever, which is the discount rate. Um, it can – another way to say that is it can, it can have loose money or tight money. Uh, so it's got one lever, and it's trying to do at least four things that I know of. It's supposed to keep full employment. It's supposed to keep the economy growing. It's supposed to have stable prices. That's three. Uh, the fourth would be, bizarrely, uh, it's involved in fighting poverty. Um, it has all kinds of community uh, banking activity and, and oversight of the Community Reinvestment Act, for example, because of that. So that's well, When you look at those sort of things, those are – you know, I always look at the CRA and things like that as um, if you actually read the legislation and read the rules that govern it – they're really rehabilitation rules to overcome the redlining problems that you had in the 50s and 60s. You know, you don't have to open a bank in Harlem, but if you do, you have to at least offer similar terms on similar credit ratings to local businesses and residences. You can't just open a bank in Harlem, suck all the money out, and only lend it to co-op buyers in Tribeca. You have to say, if you have this income and this credit rating and this debt service in Tribeca, well, the same person will qualify in, in Harlem. You don't have to open a bank, but if you do, you have to treat all your clients well. I, I look at that as such a minor, minor factor in what took place. It, it's really full employment is or, or maintaining uh, higher levels of employment and fighting inflation, and those two buckets can define 95% of what the Fed does. Well, I, I'm going to put this here after this. I will, that's a topic for another time, but my point is is that the CRA has an enormous amount of mission creep. I mean, the, the Fed has an enormous amount of mission creep, that it's got its fingers in lots of pies. It has lots of employment for economists, which gives economists, I think, a, a taint in their discussion of the Fed. But you've, your point, which I think is spectacular, is in addition to stable prices, which to me should be their only mandate, they're supposed to keep the economy humming at a steady rate of growth. They're supposed to have this community fight poverty thing somehow in the background. And now we add, oh, let's keep asset markets stable. Let's, right. let's not let there be too much variance and swings in asset prices, and let's smooth that cycle along the way. And I think your point, which I think no one that I know talks about, and I'm really glad to hear it, the emotional impact on Greenspan of swimming in those circles of any chair, by the way, it's not Greenspan alone, any chair responding to the uh, emotional and the adulation of the people he's, as you point out, he's making them winners. We're forgetting who's losing because right. he doesn't. They're not. Their booze don't reach him at that restaurant in New York or where the trading floor he strides onto. And he's uh, he's the best uh, 
He's the maestro. That, and... That's right. What, what a tremendous name. You know, the, the, we talk about mission creep. There was a speech I excerpted somewhere, and we start, it said somewhere in the book, and he starts discussing things like um, uh, psychology of, of traders. And all I can think of is, wait, so now you're the shrink and chief for, for traders. He's does it. <laughs> it's a style. I, I'm trying to remember which which speech it was, where we talked about uh, the phrase he used was confidence. We want to make sure that confidence is maintained in the financial markets. And I, I remember hearing that speech and thinking, why? Why yeah, do you want confidence? Sometimes you want lack of confidence because you got bad times. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you need to, you, you know there's, there's, you there's back. good good panic and bad panic. Sometimes when the building's on fire, you better run. Other times, it's like if you bought something and you're losing a lot of money, well, uh, that's a different response. And, and to say we're now concerned with, with the, the psychology of adrenal-crazed you know, <laughs> traders who's got their fingers on a keyboard buying and selling millions of shares, that is not part of the Fed's job description. Well, they, can, they can have confidence or not. They can make money or lose money, but that's not your job, and it's just amazing they – he went that way. Let's let's talk about two thousand and one because I think, you know, in two thousand and two and oh three and oh four when he kept interest rates at historically low rates around one percent, uh, which many people now believe was a disastrous mistake. Uh, at the time, we all said, we we I think gave him a lot of credit. We said, well, we faced the nine eleven attacks. That, that confidence was 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 shattered. People were scared. It was really important to keep. We were on the we were on the the tech bubble had just popped and we had to make sure we didn't fall into a Japan like deflation and a, a horrible recession. So these interest rate drops were necessary because he was faced with this unprecedented uh, terrorist attack, et cetera. But as you point out, that really wasn't the timing. That, that's right. The, the September 11th happened, and at the time, um, my office was headquartered in Two World Trade, and I'm I was working in the Long Island office, and so. Uh, you know, this was not like an abstract event for uh, for me. I was watching this pretty closely. I was on the cell phone with my head trader as the buildings were going down. Everybody in our office had gotten out. But it was, you know, a very real and visceral experience. And, and again, you know, you live through it, and you have one experience, and you go back and look at the actual data and press releases and news. And I was struck by the fact that the Fed cut didn't take place that day, the next day, whenever. The Fed cut rates um, just as the uh, an hour before the markets reopened on whatever that week was. I believe it was September 17th was the day the market reopened after being closed um, for, for the September 11th was a Tuesday. We closed uh, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and then the next day when we opened, um, uh, there it was. There was the cut. And you stop and think, gee, if you really uh, – this, this was an, uh, a unique period in American history, a terrorist attack on American soil with more than 3,000 fatalities and, you know, a very visible signal, uh, a very visible symbol of the United States, the trade center. I mean, stop and think about what the name meant. It was reflected globalization, reflected capitalism, reflected all these things. And, and instead of uh, – you know, doing it right away, he waited till the market was about to reopen. Uh, and that just said to me, gee, we are really all about 
the market now. The Fed is all about the market. The stock market. The stock market, and not about the economy, not about the country. The thought process is, hey, if we can get this sort of thing done now, with the market opening, and if we could make the market our focus, everything else will fall into place. And, and I think that's an enormous, enormous change in policy from what the Fed had always done. I think it's an incredibly uh, frightening change. Um, and I'm, I'm thrilled that there are some people who are alarmed about it, at least a few of us, uh, enough so that Ben Bernanke barely got reconfirmed, which I think was – I wish he hadn't been reconfirmed, but at least it's a start. Um, so let's put this in a little bit of perspective and, and get your take on this. We've got two – what I consider two parallel tracks of, of bailout. One is literal bailout where the Fed or the Treasury makes good on the promises of a financial institution that made bad bets and its creditors should have lost at least some if not all their money. And not only do they not lose some of it, they don't lose any. So we did that many, many times in this last crisis, and we did it before that as well. At the same time, we have a Federal Reserve manipulating interest rates in the hopes of keeping financial markets uh, from never going down too much. And you know, that's called – people call that the Greenspan put. Um, so we have these two tracks that both encourage recklessness, uh, both encourage risk-taking, both remove the loss from the profit and loss equation to some extent, not entirely – as we said, you know, Lehman went broke. Uh, some people lost their money. There's no doubt that there were costs paid by people who made bad decisions. But a remarkable number of people who made bad decisions made an enormous amount of money, as you point out, and as I've written as well. Uh, Fold and, and Jimmy Kane of Bear Stearns, Fold of Lehman. True, they lost a lot of paper. They had a lot of paper losses. Each lost a billion. They each were left with about $500 million, uh, money that they acquired by selling their own stock prudentially, not by playing uh, recklessly with their own money. They only played recklessly with other people's money. Not, not a bad payday for driving a, yeah. a, you know, a, a bus off the cliff. company yeah. into zero, into yeah. the ground. I agree. So we have those two things going on. What do you believe was the psychological impact on the players in the market? Uh, do you think that they – expected to be bailed out? Do you think they thought there was a chance they would be bailed out? Or do you think it was merely a, a subconscious possibility that may have affected them because it removed uh, a fear that they might otherwise have had? Well, which players are we talking about? The senior That's management? the question, isn't it? That's yeah. the question. Because a lot of stupid people did make a lot of bad decisions and didn't get bailed out. And that happens all the time. <laughs> people make dumb decisions. They think the music will never stop. They think housing prices can't go down. And they lose all their money. But the savvy people, the traders and the high-level executives are the ones who I think are the ones we ought, to, we ought to focus on. Because the claim is even they got just swept up in the exuberance. And I'm very skeptical of that. I'd like to hear your take. Really interesting question. Uh, you know, to me, the the dividing line I draw, especially when you're talking about senior management, is the senior management of the publicly traded companies and the senior management of the big non-public Wall Street partnerships. Uh, Great again, point. Going back and looking at at history, everybody forgets throughout most of the 20th century. Um, Wall Streets were like law firms and accounting firms. They were partnerships. And at a certain point, the decision was made to allow them to go public. I'm not a scholar on that particular decision. Um, I knew it took place around the same time we were deregulating 
competitive prices, and the Schwabs and the Mural Sieberts were setting up their own firms to to just provide basic execution issues. But when we look at the companies that got into trouble and the companies that didn't, it's not a coincidence that every single company that ran into trouble, um, there's a lot of OPM involved. There's a lot of other people's money and other people's capital at risk. You're a senior manager at Bayer or Lehman or Merrill or Morgan or Goldman or, or anywhere. The most that you could essentially lose is whatever you have in stock. That you, Your risk is predefined. You have these pieces of paper, you have stocks and options, and hey, if you really mess up and the company goes out of business, that paper goes to zero. That That is it. Now, there's a very different legal standard. If And as by the way, as we've known, uh, the shareholders took a loss and the taxpayers ultimately took a loss on those publicly traded but. But the executives, those executives who saw their stock wiped out, like Richard Fold, they were selling all along the way to take pieces of their portfolio and their wealth out of their own company wisely, prudently, into other things besides the things their companies were investing in. Right. And And they couldn't have captured those paper gains. When Bear Stearns' stock was 172 and Jimmy Kane was worth one point something billion dollars, he couldn't have cashed that out. Right. That gave him the cover. To play recklessly with other people's money. So the puzzle for me is, why did those other people lend them the money? And I well, have- step back a second, and, and let's look at those that instance, and then we'll compare it with the partnerships. One of the fascinating things um, that this is an argument in favor of clawing back uh, stock option gains and going after the people like Fold and, and Kane who cashed out is, uh, those stock prices were fraudulent. Those stock prices were based on... Um, an artificial inflation of earnings that was based on sheer recklessness and sheer leverage and speculation. Or what uh, you call, I like, mark-to-make-believe instead mark, of mark-to-market. Right. Mark mark there's mark-to-market, mark-to-the-model, and there's mark-to-make-believe. That's, that's right. <laughs> Listen, think of it in terms of a, a, a race course. Now, if you set the course record on the straightaway, you set the speed record – but you don't make you don't break in time, and you're going too fast to slow down and make the turn, and you hit the wall. Uh, that shouldn't really count. That speed record doesn't count because hey, anybody could just floor it and hit the wall at the end. And that's pretty much what what the banking industry and the investment houses did is they were flat out running throttle wide open, no concern about making a turn, no concern about breaking. And so, uh, yeah, how hard is it to sell stock at 100 and 150 and 175 if you don't care if, if uh, you know, you're showing profits that are driving prices, but the prices appear to be based on normal banking policies and normal investing strategies, and instead it's based on just, you know, uh, flat out, pedal to the metal, and, and let's hope we don't have to hit the brakes or, or turn. So, so that's number one. Number two and, and to me, this is the key psychology. This is the key difference in when you want to, when, when people say, well, I lost all this money and I wasn't acting more aggressively than I would have. If you're in a publicly traded company, the, you essentially have a limited exposure to the amount of stock you own, or in employees' cases, stocks and options. When we look at partnerships, this is a very different legal standard. If a partnership that has a worth of, of two or three or five billion dollars, Ends up doing what uh, a Lehman brother does, and then and loses fifty billion dollars. Well, first, the assets of the partnership are, get 
partnership are exhausted by creditors. They take the building and, and whatever business is there and whatever art is on the walls they can sell. But once the partnership, which is typically a, a, a type of corporation, once that's exhausted, the fascinating thing about partnerships are then you get to go after each and every partner. So if Bear Stearns was a partnership, they would go after Ace Greenberg and Jimmy Kane, and they would take that their houses, their yeah. cars, their boats, their Rolex, their Monets, their whatever you could sell at auction, they get to go after. Now, stop and think about all the companies that are big partnerships. Um, it, Lazard Frez, which actually went public but was late in the process, they, they went public too late to get into trouble. And the Brown Brothers, Harriman, and there's a, you know, a few dozen of these giant... Halberg, Kravitz, and... Yeah, there's, there's a ton of these. And none of them got anywhere near into the leverage, the speculation, the trouble. That's the big banks. Is. Now, neither, you, neither did the hedge funds, I don't think, right. as much either. That's right. Also, partnerships with... Now, if you're an investor in a hedge fund, theoretically, you, you took are a, a limited liability partner. But if you're yeah, the GP, the if you're the, the hedge yeah, fund no. manager... In theory, you know, if Stevie Cohen blows up, they take his mansion in Connecticut and his car collection and everything else until the, the debts are, are paid down. So when you look and say, how is it that the risk management and partnerships was so radically different than the risk management of publicly traded companies, it makes it hard to argue. And, and you can't really find a, an example. We, we know all of the non-bank lenders in, out in California that were fond of the exotic mortgages and and the subprime lending. We know of 380 or so of those went belly up. Yeah, went bankrupt. Right. These are small firms that existed primarily to securitize, to sell loans to the securitizers on Wall Street, and you're talking about 10 and 20 and 30-man shops with staked with 40 million or 80 million, and for a while they made good money. But I'm referring to you know the 50 and 100-year-old multi-billion dollar firms, be, them, be they partnership or or publicly traded, how is it that the partnerships managed to avoid this mess and so many of the publicly traded companies did not? And you're, you cannot help but draw the conclusion that the Incentives. management was willing to take big risks with shareholders' money, but not with their own. typically they wouldn't do that with themselves. And, and that's why I have a hard time you know, giving these guys a pass. Yeah, well, you said you weren't a historian. I'm, I'm not a great historian of this, but a lot of people, you know, everybody picks their own pet thing to point at for the cause of the crisis. One of the things people point at is this change in structure of the industry from f- very few partnerships in the investment bank world to these publicly traded investment banks like Bear Stearns. And I think they miss the point that that's not a random event. And if you look at the history, I think you'll find, and it has to be verified, but I'm pretty sure this is correct, uh, they go public in the 80s. Right. They go public in the aftermath could be a coincidence, but maybe not, of the Continental Illinois bailout, where all of a sudden, to me, the signal – what was important about the Continental Illinois bailout is it says to financial players, you know, if you leverage, you might not pay a price for it. A better way to say it is if if you want to borrow a lot of money, you might be able to get it because those folks may be willing to take a a greater risk with with their loans than they used to be because now they may get bailed out the creditors, and as a result, you can build an investment bank around the model of 30 to 1, 25 to 1, sometimes more leverage, and you're going to make an enormous amount of money along the way, justify those salaries and stock options, and your worst-case scenario for you is, yeah, yeah, your stock goes down, but you've squirreled away enough along the way that you're going to do great, and it might not blow up. It's not like a plan. 
So to me, the, the, the publicly traded company, which is allowed through leverage <clears throat> to get enormously larger, the only reason that works is because those creditors are willing to take that, that new risk. And I think we changed the risk environment that they played in and made partnerships less attractive. To me, the mystery is why anybody stayed as a partner. And most of them didn't. Most of them did go public for this reason. You know, where you had a, a, a senior manager who, uh, I'm trying to remember the firm that came from old, old, old European money, and it was a famous name, and they just didn't care about going public because they had such a nice business model, and it was it was very genteel, and I'm drawing a blank on the name, but it's a very British royalty-sounding yeah. name. And there's a handful of them. There's a few of them. Some of them uh, were out of Switzerland. Some of them were out of London. And they were very happy, like, running a few billion dollars and doing an occasional deal or here or, or two. But, but they were much more interested in, you know, the social side of it and, and didn't feel the need. And you can certainly understand why some people are this way. Uh, I have a net worth of a billion dollars. How much more money do I need? Who wants the headache with going public? We don't want public shareholders. We're very happy to be a quiet little partnership. So, so you end up with a handful of, of those sort of people, but they're few and far between, and the bulk, the vast bulk of the publicly traded um, companies were, you know, they were very, very happy to uh, go for the leverage. And, again, it's not a coincidence that a lot of these guys – it started out as sort of hard scrabble traders. You look at or bankers. Uh, you look at the guys at Bear Stearns, and you look at the guys at Lehman Brothers. Both had a reputation for not being Ivy League firms. A lot of Brooklyn guys come up, and suddenly they're competing in the big leagues. And you you really end up with a little bit. And again, I don't want to get into the pop psychology of this, but you end up with a sort of hyper competitive, hyper aggressiveness that you don't see in the old world, old moneyed firms uh, from Europe. It was a but very, very different attitude. And I think that's I, look, true, but there's nothing wrong with that except when they were playing with my money. I don't mind. That becomes, <laughs> I don't that mind becomes if... exactly it. It becomes a, a competition to see how much money um, uh, you could generate. Uh, and by the way, uh, from, from my experience watching this, it wasn't about um, I, I want more money. It was about... You know who's winning? It's prestige. It's yeah, glamour. It was a competition, and money was just the score. It wasn't money for its own sake. It was you know like playing a game of pickup ball, and and you didn't care what the final score was as long as you won. It wasn't for the cash. It was. I think it all mattered. I think it That's all mattered. Right. Well, we're almost out of t- we're out of time, but I I, I want to close first. Let me say some a few nice things about your book, and and I want to ask you a closing question. What I really like about the book uh, for listeners out there is the. The span of stuff you 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 try to explain in a very accessible way uh, among all the books I've read on the crisis, and I've read way too many. Um, I'm sure you have too, or maybe you stopped reading. I've stopped. I, I, I'm done. I tried not to while I was writing. I understand this one for obvious reasons. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a, that's a healthy thing. But you cover a lot of history. You cover a lot of pieces of the puzzle in a way that a that a non technical reader can really uh, get a lot out of it. So I, it's a real, uh, it's an unusually educational book on the crisis without being dull, and I, I salute you for that. My, clo- my closing question is, uh, what have you learned? Not, not what have we learned. I, I don't think we've learned enough as a, as a nation and as a body politic yet. We're going to be learning these lessons for a long time, and we're going to 
misunderstands many things, of course, inevitably. But I'm curious as a as a player in the world that I'm I'm not in, uh, in the investment world, what have you learned personally from living through this um, this remarkable time? Uh, well, two things, and and before I answer that, I have to thank you for the kind words uh, about the book. That very much was my goal was to not. You know, if you're familiar with the famous poem of the six blind men describing the elephant, I didn't want to just describe one aspect of this. I tried to take the 40,000-foot view and, and describe uh, the central banking approach and, and what was going on with Wall Street and what was going on with Washington, D.C., and what was going on in the investing community and the broader economy, and I, I hope I made some progress uh, in, a, in accomplish, accomplishing that. In terms of what I've learned uh, over the past two years, you know, there are two lessons that, that stick out, and I'm, I'm sort of surprised by them. Um, first, uh, this country has more or less become ungovernable. I, I'm astonished that we have not taken any steps. We've essentially taken no steps to fix what was broken. And, and there are clearly uh, many, many errors that took place leading up to this. It, it, there was no single factor. I, I try to point to a, a lot of them, and obviously uh, on that list, one of the chapters has about 30 people and things to blame, um, but it's the first half dozen or so that are really so problematic. Uh, th- there's been nothing done. Uh, a year ago, I said the, probably the best trade you can make was to get long you know, torches and pitchforks, because when the population feels, figures out how badly they're being robbed, they're yeah. going to rise up and, and, you know, the joke is, uh, someone asked me about that the other day, and I said, well, my miscalculation was, first, I didn't expect the sudden death of Michael Jackson. That obviously was more important than this. And then we had a particularly close, you know, finale in American Idol, and it yeah, goes back to the, yeah. to, to the Roman bread and circuses. So, so that's the first thing that I learned, is that, uh, you know, the, as long as the population is fed, uh, they kind of roll over and don't care. They're they're on to the next issue. I'm I'm surprised that there's been there, there's been all sorts of sort of diffuse outrage. Yeah, there's a quite a bit actually. I'm a little more heartened than you are, but I, I see the I see the anger, but it's it's just it's more a, general and not yeah. how could you have done this this and this and and. So that surprised me. That's, how, the half, how, that's the half-empty view. The half-full view is when you almost don't confirm Times Man of the Year as the next uh, – as the continuing Fed chairman. I think there's some, there's some value. There's some, yeah, there's there's some optimi- source for optimism. Yeah. The, the second thing, and, and, and this is stunning to me, is, is how human nature just is never changing. And yeah. uh, so, so we, we come through the, the crisis – I don't want to say unscathed, but you know, buildings are still standing, and and people are still. You got to feed your kids and send them to school and make yep. sure, uh, you know, the, the economy marches on. And speaking to investors over the past, you know, two or three years as we've gone through this, uh, if if you were paying attention and you avoided the bloodshed in the market, great. If you got uh, e- either lucky or whatever, and managed to jump back in in March when things were at their lows. That's terrific. Uh, here it is. We're, we're, this is barely a year in the rearview mirror, and people continue to ask. So, where's the next great, you know, money making opportunity? Where's the next great? 
And, and there's I would almost, get by 10% again. Uh, right. There's <laughs> no circumspection whatsoever. There's no, gee, maybe we need to stop and step back a little bit and think business as usual isn't, isn't going to be what's going on. And yet I, I see none of that. I see basically a handful of people rotated out of stocks and into real estate and got caught in that boom and bust. And then they rotated into commodities, and then the start of the re- recession, they got hurt in that. And now they're, what's the next bubble for us to invest in? And I, I'm a, you know, uh, the corollary to this is the Onion is supposed to be a, a, a parody, a, a yeah, satirical humor. newspaper, yeah. but, it, but it isn't. The headlines on the Onion just are so true. Uh, there was one not too long ago, American, America demands another bubble to invest in. <laughs> and, and to me... Uh, that that's one of the more surprising things. It wasn't, gee, this this bubble process is dangerous, and we need to be a little more cautious. Instead, it's like, gee, I hope I've learned to jump out before the next bubble pops, and please give me another one so I can make money on the upside. Mm-hmm. So, so if I had to give you two things, it would be how generally ungovernable the country seems to be becoming, and secondly, how you, human nature just never changes. My guest today has been Barry Ritholtz. Barry, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.